welcome once again to the Perimeter Church Podcast. In the movie Who Framed Roger Rabbit, there's a famous line from Jessica Rabbit as she professes innocence, I'm not bad, I'm just drawn that way. If we are born in sin, drawn that way, so to speak, then how can anyone, even God, hold me accountable? Lead teacher Randy Pope continues the series Excuses, Excuses, Excuses with part one of God Made Me the Way I Am, which covers Romans chapter 1, verses 21 through 32. Thank you for joining us today. I think every one of us, every one of us, has in reality fallen asleep on the job at some time. Maybe in the workplace, maybe it's Maybe it's in school, but I mean literally fall asleep on the job. And then you're awakened. Maybe it's your boss or maybe it's the teacher and you're awakened and startled to realize that, oh my goodness, I fell asleep. And what do you say? Well, you know, now you can go online and find an answer to everything, right? So I thought it'd be interesting to see what are some good responses. This is one that I liked a lot. They told me this morning at the blood bank that this might happen. That's a good one. There's a whole list of them, but the one I liked most of all was simply this one. In Jesus' name, amen. (laughs) Man, we all look for excuses to cover our failures, do we not? Every one of us do. Let's admit it. The reality is, if we can believe our own excuses, we really like it because it makes us feel better about our failures. And there's no exception in the realm of the spiritual world, none whatsoever. We're always looking for good excuses. Throughout history, we've looked for excuses spiritually to make us feel better about the idea that we're not embracing an obedient love relationship with the designer of our being, our creator. And something in us says, this isn't good. I need to be close. I need to be following. But I I don't want to do that, but I don't want to feel so bad about not doing it. And so what I'll do is I'll come up with a good excuse. And we do. We come up with good excuses. In the book of Romans 1 through 3, that's what we have. The Apostle Paul, speaking under inspiration of the Holy Spirit, gives us what we call revelation, the revealing of God's truth about this subject matter. And he's saying to the people, look, you need to listen. You need to understand that there are going to always be a temptation to move toward excuses, and there are a few that are very, very, very common. Everywhere you go, people are using these four. Christian, I'm going to suggest to you, not only for your own sake, but as you're helping other people, you need to understand how do you walk through when you hear these excuses being used, how do you help them? But most, most important, we're all here today to say, how do I help me when I come to use the same excuses, when I think the same excuses? What does God have to say? There are four that are given in these three chapters. We've already looked at the first two. Here was the first one. The first one is simply this. God is good. In fact, He is so good that I think it is fair to say that regardless of how I've failed, and I know I have failed, But God is way too good to actually, in eternity, separate me from him. I I just think he's too good to do that. 
And so we turn to the book of Romans 1. And we're starting the series in verse 18. The first 17 verses is a prelude that gets us there. Now we come to verse 18. We've already looked at this text one week, but it reads like this. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who suppress the truth in unrighteousness. And so he says, no, God is a loving God. God is a good God, but he will reveal his wrath. We talked about that. Then we move to the next couple of verses that bring up a second excuse that comes out of the first. Because, oh, yeah, yeah, I understand that, but here's the deal. I really never, you know, I really never knew. I, I I didn't understand that truth to suppress it. It just never was clear. I wasn't around that many people, whatever it may be. And so here's how he says in verses 19 and 20. We spent two weeks on these verses. Because that which is known about God is evident within them, for God made it evident to them. For since the creation of the world, his invisible attributes, his eternal power and divine nature have been clearly seen, being understood through what has been made so that they are without excuse. And we we tried to address the issues from a little baby to somebody who doesn't have mental capabilities to whatever and so forth. How do you interpret this text? And we walked through that two weeks to understand that one. Now we come to our third, and our third is one that we hear all the time. Many of us have used. It's simply this. Hey, God made me the way I am. I can't help it. Uh, He made me this way. So we're going to jump into that one. We are all prone to point fingers, are we not? A little child. A little child says, get on to them for something. What are they going to say? They're going to give you an excuse. Some of them are terrible excuses, but they'll come up with an excuse. It's always somebody else made me do it or this, that, or the other. There's an excuse they're going to come up with. I've learned this as I entered the golf world a number of years ago. I realized that golfers are notorious for it. And in fact, I became one of them. It's just so easy. Well, it was the yeah, it was because, well, because of this and this happened. I just didn't do that and so forth. And we always want to excuse it some way or the other, do we not? Now, the old people here, people my age and older, they remember uh, a name of a man, Flip Wilson. Some of you remember that name? <laughs> Flip Wilson. And everybody here that does, they know who made him do it. Devil made me do it. It's always the devil. Devil made me do those wrong things. We go back in history. The very first human, according to the Word of God, a man named Adam. God comes to Adam and says, Adam, what did you do? Why did you do that? And what does he say? Woman made me do it. Which I don't think is an all bad excuse if you think through that one. That one, that one is not quite as bad, but, but it is an excuse, and we're all used to doing it, Right? Well, we know this, that we are all are immoral people. Anybody here perfect? No, none of us are. We are an immoral people. We do immoral things. And some people are doing immoral things that when we hear of it, we read of it, we just say, how could they do that? I mean, truthfully, how many times have we said that? What were they thinking? How could they even imagine they're going to get away with that? I mean, a classic illustration in the news several years ago about Tiger Woods and what happened and all the revelation about his life. And, and people say, was he thinking he was going to get away? How, what in the world? 
Aaron Hernandez, if guilty of, as charged, you say, what was it? Gosh, he had everything. He had a career ahead of him and so forth. And uh, you can do that with one movie star after the other, lose a career or whatever because of, of just doing something so insane, so crazy. We say, what were they thinking? Then there's kind of another whole category. We say, okay, that's an immoral thing and they do things. But then there are what you have to call really, really, really stupid immoral things, right? So there you just need to research a little bit and you can find there's some really stupid things going on. So I researched it to see what would be some of the more stupid things that people do. Immorally wrong, but what are some of the more stupid things? I read of a, a man in, uh, in Colorado Springs and he uh, decided to rob a convenience store. And so he goes in and he, he says, all the cash, you know, and so the Cashier there puts all the money in the bag, everything they had, and he's ready to exit. And about that time, he looks across the shoulder of the, of the uh, attendant there and says, attendant says, uh, hey, I want, a, I want that bottle of scotch. Throw it in the bag. The worker said, I can't do that. He said, you can't do that? What do you mean? He said, well, I, I can't give alcohol to those 21 and under. I don't think you're <laughs> the right age. And the guy said, I'm 21. What are you talking about? He says, I don't know. You don't look it. He said, well, here's my ID. And he handed him his ID. <laughs> True story. Leaves. And of course, he calls and says, here's the name of the person. And they called him immediately. And said, now that's what you call stupid immoral, right? There's one other great story. It was, uh, this was in Detroit. And a, an adult came up on a scene where the policeman was there with a group of kids that were gathered around. I don't know if it was a class or whatever, but it was a group of kids that were trying to just see the patrol car and what all was in it. And um, so they, they have this computer felon locator machine or whatever that's in there. And so this guy's just observing and watching. And he said, I didn't understand it. How does that work? And so the officer said, well, I tell you, give me your identification. Yep, you know it. And in the identification, it showed that he had was look, he was, uh, they were looking for him for a theft from two years prior in a different state. So they said, that's how it works. You're under arrest. And there it was. <laughs> now you say, now that is really, really a stupid, immoral thing. And we ask ourselves, how do we get there? How do people come to the place to lose careers, make such stupid decisions, knowing they're going to get caught, knowing this isn't going to work? Why still the passion? Why the how do you explain it? Well, that's what God does here for us in Romans 1. He says, you need to understand you. You need to understand why you do things like this. And it's not just that you wake up one morning, you take a stupid pill, and all of a sudden it happens. <laughs> it's not even that all of a sudden you have a little temptation. Next thing you know, you're having all of these behavioral passions that are so against the rule of God. It doesn't just happen that way. What he's going to say is there is a sequence that takes place. In fact, if you take the study of Romans 1 through 3, you'll find that there are five progressions there in the text, and that's what we're going to look at. This week, we're going to look at the first three steps of that progression, and then next week, we're going to look at the last two, and we're going to also really dig into what is the answer. So I feel a little badly that this has to be divided in two, but it would take too long to go through the text justice. So a lot of the solution is going to be coming. I'll touch on it at the end, but, but we'll really get into that next week as well, okay? So if you have your Bibles, take them, take them out. We're going to look at these steps now, beginning with step number one. And it's, 
entitled this, Man's Decline Begins with Irreverence and Ingratitude. You remember those two words. Irreverence, not giving honor, is what irreverence is. And then ingratitude, not being thankful. Young people, children, kids, if you want to be sure that your life is going to stay whole, that you're not going to get in all kind of issues and problems and ruin your life, then you keep those two before you as you think about your God. It truly honor, another word for that we'll be using is glory. Honor, glory. Thanksgiving. You give those two. That's how we're designed to live, as we'll see. So let's look at verse 21 as we begin the text. It says, For even though they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks. But instead, they became futile in their speculations, and the foolish heart was darkened. Keep it up a minute. Even though they knew God. Now, we need to be very careful not to think that they knew God in a relational way. This particular word does not suggest that. This is knowing of God. This is what we've already studied last couple of weeks. They knew the existence of God. They knew and understood who he was in that regard. Innately, they knew it but not a saving knowledge. Then if we put the verse right back up, it gets into these, uh, the, the terms here, became futile in their speculations. Well, let's look at those words for just a minute. They're important. The first word futile means foolish or empty. The word speculation is really a word made up of two words. The, the first, it's, it's dia, which means in the Greek through, and logismos, and we get the word logic for that, through logic, Actually, to define it, it means logic or reasoning. It says, here it is. Uh, they became futile in their speculations, in their logic, and in their reasoning. So something is happening to people who are not intended to do this, but all of a sudden begin to do what? Well, they begin to pull away. They know God, but they don't honor or give thanks. So there are those two words, honor and give thanks. Now, I love the way that, um, oh, and by the way, it says, and there, it leads to a, a, a darkened heart. And it says, and therefore their, their hearts are darkened. The heart is the center of the being, of the individual. It's, it's, it's made up of how a person thinks, uh, their words, their deeds. It's the very center of the universe of an individual. And it says something happens to the heart and it begins to dim. It gets darker and darker. Something's happening in the heart. And we're just thinking it's all about the mind. They're not thinking. Why don't they think? No, no, no. Something's happening to the heart. Got to know that. We are so much prone to think it's all about how people think. Well, it starts with the thinking, but it leads down to something else. The heart begins to be darkened. I like the way William Hendrickson, one of my favorite commentators, he puts it this way. Whenever people begin to reason on their own, hear this, young people, whenever people begin to reason on their own without checking the results of their speculations, there's that word, with God's revelation in nature, history, conscience, and especially God's word, then foolish hearts are darkened. We began to think, oh, it just makes sense. This will be fun. God wants me to have fun. God wants me to be happy. 
I don't understand why he says not to do it, but I know he wants me happy. Oh, I think I'll do it. And it's our speculation, our reasoning. And the next thing you know, there we go. Next thing we know, there's the pain and the heartache and the story of brokenness and all the stuff. And we say, whatever happened? Well, it happened that we started in a small progression. We didn't give honor. We didn't give thanks. And we reasoned on our own as opposed to going to the Word of God. How many of us right now would say, I'm engaged? Don't raise your hand. You wouldn't anyway. I'm engaged in thought, excessive thought. I'm engaged in attitude and justifying the attitude. I am engaged in lifestyle. I'm engaged in activities that I know the Bible says, uh-uh, don't do that. But I've justified it, and I'm in pursuit because it feels right to me. That's what he's talking about right there. Be careful because the pursuit of that leads to a darkened heart. But it doesn't stop there. So let's go back to our, to our text. We're designed to worship a creator, to see him as he is, and to give him honor and thanks. And when we don't, we'll replace it with something. So we go to step number two. So let's look at step two. Now, irreverence and ingratitude give way to idolatry. Idolatry. Let me read verse 23 and then 25. 23 says, continue on, and therefore exchange the glory of the incorruptible God for an image in the form of of corruptible man, but also birds, four-footed animals, and crawling creatures. There's a progression that goes there. I keep talking around this place about glory. In fact, there's a little book I've written called um, The Answer. The first third is about glory. Because I am convinced as a parent that you better teach your children about glory. I'm convinced as adults we better grasp the concept of glory. There's glory of God. Glory would mean splendor or whatever, um, just the, the, the grandeur, splendor of God. But there's also the glory to God, that we give him that honor and reverence. We give him glory. We put him in first place. There's also the glory that comes from God that gives us the fullness and happiness of life as stripped from us when we sin, all fall short of the glory of God. And then in Christ, he is the hope of glory. And so we talk about glory, glory, glory. I tell young people, get this right. Why does God do all things? God does all things for his glory. If you don't believe it, if you don't get it, life's going to be hard. So here it is, glory. Got to understand the concept of glory. Well, what we do is the glory that's designed for God, glory to God, we say, you know what? I think I'll give the glory elsewhere. Where do we start? We start with man. A lot of people just give glory to people, other people. They look at everything's about other people, other people. If I can just get their approval, if I can get them. But you know what? It doesn't even stop there. He says it, it, it goes on to birds and four footed animals. And then it even goes to crawling creatures. You know, it's the same order of creation. He's making a point here. God creates us in his image, and what do we do? We flip it around, and we're going to now put him in our image and even worse than us. Why? Because we can control that. 
We can even perhaps control superhumans. And we make God into a superhuman. Maybe we whittle him down where he's worse than a human because who would ever do to people what that God does to people? He's worse than we are. Till now, we'll take anything that we enjoy or love and we'll say, that'll be my God. I'll just make it my, and we can call that idol. It actually becomes an idol. I have a definition for idol that I that I've used, and I've certainly been shaped by many people that I've, I've heard. It goes like this. Anything which rivals the person and work of Christ and his indwelling presence as his or her means of finding happiness. Anything else. Can you imagine how insulting the arrogance of man to say, oh, you know what, God? You have promised that you will do this and you'll take care of me and that I should. But you know what? I can't buy that. But I believe I can trust this person over here. I think I can trust this thing that if I get it, it's going to make me happy. I'm not buying you, but I'm buying it. That's what's going to work for me. How insulting to God. And so, as Tim Keller, many of you know that name, great uh, author and and preacher. uh, He's defined it this way. It's life has meaning or I have worth only if, and whatever you fill in the blank, that becomes your idol or your God, so to speak. Uh, I can't tell you what book. I'm sure he's got it in some book that I'm not even aware of where it is. But I got a white paper that, uh, that he had put out that, that uh, walked through different types of idols. This was years ago. And there, it's a wonderful description. It just puts, here are some of the common idols that we've made in our life. I went through this list of 16 idols. Actually, a few more I little few outs just for time here, but I want to show you 16 of these idols. And if you're interested, you're not going to be able to write them down too fast, but you can go on perimeter.org slash pope, and you can get this as of this coming week if you're interested. But I took these idols, and I just looked at them, read them one at a time, and I began to star the ones that were truly major battlefields for me personally. And I had seven I would encourage you, even as I read this, you might just write down the one word that describes the idol and find those that are yours. Even as I have my, I have more than seven. I'm talking about seven that are major battlefields. You'll find four, seven, who knows? But we all have got them if we're honest. And so hang on to what you find here. Let me read through them. First of all, power idolatry. And so it says, if I have, meaning I cannot find worth, I cannot find happiness unless or if. If I have power and influence over others, power, idolatry. This is one that got a star for me. If approval, idolatry. If I am loved and respected by others. Hmm. Comfort, idolatry. If I have a particular standard of quality of life, image idolatry. If I have a particular look or body image, by the way, I bet a lot of our young people, I know I struggled a whole lot more with this when I was young than I am older, but it's it's for all of us, I'm sure, but so hard for young people. Control idolatry. If I get mastery over my life in particular areas, helping idolatry is interesting. If people are dependent on me and need me. Dependence idolatry. 
if someone is there to protect me. Independence idolatry. If I am completely free from obligations or responsibilities to care for others. Work idolatry. If I am highly productive by getting a lot accomplished. Achievement idolatry. If I am being recognized for my accomplishments and excelling in life pursuits. Materialism idolatry. If I have a certain level of wealth and nice things. How about religion? Wow. Religion idolatry. If I am adhering my religious moral code to my religious moral code. Family idolatry. If my kids and spouse are happy and especially happy with me. Mm. Relationship idolatry. If Mr. or Miss Wright is in love with me. Suffering idolatry. If I only feel worthy of being loved or able to deal with my guilt when hurt or struggling. Mm. Pleasure idolatry. If I have something fun or entertaining, entertaining to look forward to in the future. Do you understand that these are not bad things? Work, family. I mean, my goodness, they're good things. But we take good things that God has created. And we take it and said, instead of you, God, let me put it up here where you should be. And I'll look for you to give me the satisfaction. And if I don't have satisfaction, I can't be happy. If I can't be satisfied by this idol, I can't get that idol. I will never be happy. No, he says, you'll find what you need in me. If you'll just come to me, I will give you. That's what he said when he said he's the bread of life. When he said, I'm the living water. It's just him saying, come to me. You won't thirst. Come to me. You won't hunger. I'm the one that can give me. No, 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 no. I can't believe it. I've got to live this way. I know God says no, but I'm going to do it this way. Uh-uh. It's a step, and it's step two. Idolatry, thirdly, leads to step three. Idolatry gives way to impurity and all kind of impurities. One person has said it this way, what the heart inappropriately lusts for, the body ultimately pays for. Wow. Romans 1, 24. Therefore God gave them over in the lust of their hearts to impurity so that their bodies would be dishonored among them. You see, what happens there is that God gives it over. He gives us over. Those words don't forget. It's not that it's just simply all about me and I, I was tempted and I looked at this and so forth. No, this progression takes place and God gives over. Many hear that or read it and say, that does not seem fair, that God would give them over. Therefore, yeah, God's the one that made me this way. He's the one that gave me over. No, 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 no. Do you know what that means to God give you over? It's the same idea as when you read that God hardened Pharaoh's heart. And we make God the, the perpetrator of evil. Oh, he took a good heart in Pharaoh and he hardened it. And so look what Pharaoh did. And then he gets punished. That's not right. No, that's not what it says at all. It's saying that what he's doing is withdrawing his grace I love the analogy of, of, a, of a concrete that is, you know, it's mixed up with water and it's pliable and so forth, and you, you quit putting the water on it and it's going to harden. He's withdrawing his grace, the water, so to speak. There is a saving grace. It's called special grace. 
God gives to people so that they can come into a relationship with him. Without that saving grace, we don't know him. But there's a common grace that goes to all mankind. It has no issue of whether you're a good person, bad person, you know, you get the grace. And that common grace can be withdrawn. Grace means you don't deserve it to begin with. So if it were not for the grace of God, we wouldn't be civil today. The heart would be so desperately wicked, we're told that it wouldn't do anything right. But grace, common grace, helps us to be kind and loving and whatever, even as a non-Christian. That's common grace. But he says, I do this. When you start taking what should be honor and, and as we call it, glory or honor, and you start th taking thankfulness and you pull it away, and you now start moving toward idols, and you replace me with other things, I'll tell you what will happen. The heart will darken. And I'll withdraw grace, and the withdrawal of grace will cause you to have passions and to feel things and to begin doing things that are so irrational. People look around and say, what are you thinking? Why would you do that? I don't know. It just seems right to me. Well, it's speculation. But it's a false speculation. It's a reasoning that's not, it's no longer appropriate reasoning. And it's just a process that happens. It is called idols. So all this to say, don't just look at your sinful behavior. Look for what's below those sinful behaviors. What kind of idolatries? What are you taking and replacing instead of God as the one worthy of glory, your glory, and your thankfulness? What do you need to eliminate and put God back in the rightful position? That's how we deal with the issues of our heart. Let me conclude with this. Just a question. How do you view your life story? Look at your life. Look at the story of your life. And how do you view it? Do you view it as a raw deal? When you look at your life, do you find yourself thankful to God for the good and what appears to be the bad? Or do you say, oh, no, no, I'm not going to be thankful. What have I got to be thankful for? Look what's going on in my life. God shouldn't have done this to begin with. Oh, really? No, no, no. Thanksgiving. Who are we honoring? Where are we giving the honor? Is it to the idols of life or is it to God himself? And he says, the way you come back, which we're going to address in a much deeper way next week, but the way you're going to get back is by reversing the process. Can you be thankful versus complaining? grumbling? Can you give him honor and look at the idols of life and say, God, I confess that as an idol. I'll struggle forever, but I want to identify it and I want to deal with it. Lord, I want your power to help me deal with it. And you appropriate the power of his Holy Spirit. I teach that all the time here. Appropriate the power of spirit. So what happens? You begin to see the heart lightened. And next thing you know, you're not doing the things. You're not craving. You're not having to have and things begin to change. That's the way he wants us to live. Taking idols, replacing it with God himself. It sounds so simple. It is in a sense, but it's hard. We're broken people. But even though it's hard, don't throw away what works. Don't throw away God's plan that he has given us. It's the central issue of glory. If you go back to one thing, go back to glory. And give the glory to God that he's rightfully due. You do that and you're headed back in the right direction. We'll explore this in a much deeper way next week. Go to the cross though. 
You're here without Christ. Go to the cross to find the relationship with him. If you're a Christian, go to the cross to find the strength, the motivation, everything you need. Turn to his spirit to empower you. Always go to his work. Don't go to your own. I'll try harder. No, I'll go to you, Lord, and invite you to change me. That's how we change. We're going to close in prayer, and we're going to do this. I'm going to pray on your behalf and mine as well, and I'm going to pray a prayer of saying, Lord, I want to say thank you to you. We're going to say thank you to God. You can borrow what I say or not, but I'm going to say thank you on all of our behalf. And I'm also going to ask him if he would regain the position of glory in our lives that he is due to have. And if you'd like to borrow that, you express it as well. And we close now in prayer. Let's bow. Father, I want to begin by maybe saying something that I've not said in a long time. And that is, thank you. Thank you for the pain. Thank you for the suffering. Thank you for the hardship. I know that, I know that as your child, you take those hardships that you hate worse than even we do. And as has been said, you hate those things, but you love what you accomplish through them. And those of us even that are not yours, we know that in your love, you are you're giving us opportunity to, to see that other things don't work and to turn to you. But we would like to now say thank you. Thank you for giving us everything we need to truly find contentment and satisfaction. Thank you. We want to say, I'm sorry. I'm sorry for the fact that I've taken your glory and I've given it to someone else or something else. And I've made the idols of this world who you were designed to be for me. And I am sorry. And I ask your forgiveness right now. Restore my heart. Bring it to light. Take away the darkness. And let me love you and follow you. We ask all in the great name of our Savior Jesus. You've been listening to the Perimeter Church Podcast. Perimeter Church is located at the corner of Highway 141 and Old Alabama Road in Johns Creek, Georgia. Please visit our website at www.perimeter.org for more information to give us your feedback and find other messages from our teaching team. Thanks for making this podcast a part of your day.